subscribe to our channel. Welcome to the GOT Questions Podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, hey. say hey to the people. I'm here. Ah, Spencer's here. Uh, we are doing our second episode. This is episode two of the Got Questions Podcast. As we explained during the first episode, if you didn't listen to it, you should go check it out. It's pretty good. To all six of that, you that did, we appreciate you. Yeah, we appreciate you. Our six fans. At this rate, Spencer, think about it. At this rate, when we're 50, we'll have like 400 fans. Faster than that. We went from zero to six and one. That's that's beyond simply exponential growth. Uh, it's pretty strong. I think we're doing pretty good. But if you haven't, if you, you catch us later and you haven't heard the first episode, go back, check it out. Uh, but as we explained in that episode, the point of this podcast is to just give you a bit of a refresher. We're in the long night right now with Game of Thrones. Winds of Winter is... MIA. Uh, we have no idea when the hell that's coming. Season eight, at best, next April. So we, we've got a long time with no content. So we wanted to get you refreshed with the, the community, uh, with the story. Uh, maybe make some jokes along the way, get you uh, your morning commute a little easier, your time at your gym a little more fun. So that's our goal here. Let's also Spencer, admit, anything you want to add? Let's also admit that a portion of our goal here is to simply cope with the sense of loss we have from no Game of Thrones material. For the foreseeable future. This is how we survive. That's true. That's true. We are grieving. So every snarky comment, joke, or bad impression you hear, it comes from a place of mourning. It also will most likely come from you. But, you know, I'll try to contribute too. (laughs) Okay. All right. I want to talk a little uh, housekeeping here. So this is the GOT Got Questions podcast. It is a Game of Thrones-centric podcast. We are doing season seven right now. Mm -hmm. plan on doing subsequent seasons. We'll probably go back. Uh, to seasons that we like, maybe season one, season three, season six. Um, we haven't really discussed that yet, but there will be more after this season ends. Mm-hmm. But this is a podcast under the Mangum Talks channel. And this is a channel that uh, me, Spencer, uh, some of our friends have created. It's a group of friends. We, we've known each other forever. And we thought, hey, uh, let's do a podcast. It'll keep us together. It'll keep us talking. And hopefully it can be entertaining to folks. So this is the first podcast under the, the Mangum Talks uh, podcast channel, but you will see subsequent ones, and they may not just be with Spencer and me. Mm-hmm. And I know that's really upsetting to most of you. <laughs> I feel like this is a very constructive way for us to more efficiently hate on each other in a much more targeted manner. That- there will be some of that. There will be some of that. But let me tell you something, Spencer. The yeah. Mangum Talks podcast channel, it's all love here. It's all love. We love each other. We love the people. We love the shows that we review and critique. Yes, and some relationships of love were also sadomasochistic, and this just happens to be one of those. Spencer, we're two episodes in, and you're already divulging way too much information about yourself. I feel open to these people now. <laughs> okay, so that's that's the housekeeping. Um, if you haven't been to our podcast, it's mangumtalks.com. Uh, there you'll find uh, podcasts that you can download, recaps. We'll have a forum where you can talk to us. We can hopefully talk to you if you're not weird or creepy. Mm. And we can just create a fun community that you can you can be a part of. So check it out. Uh, but we're going to jump into GOT Got Questions podcast, episode two, which is season seven, episode two of season seven, titled Stormborn. Yeah. I'm just going to point out to start this. Lee, were you in the same boat as me as remembering basically nothing that happened in this episode before we started? Yeah, I, I was. And here's the thing. And we kind of br- we touched on this briefly before we, we started is that, you know, 
I, I remember this, the, the big parts of this season, right? The episode one, where we're jumping back into the world. Episode four, we have the big battle sequence. Of course, you've got the nonsense shenanigans behind the, uh, beyond the wall, which we'll get to. <laughs> See, episode two really didn't jump out. But on a rewatch, it was one of the more quality episodes of this season. And a heck of a lot happens. I was surprised how dense it really was. Again, given how much that had occurred, like you said, I kind of just focused on this season as it started, there was a big battle scene, they did done things beyond the wall, and I kind of breezed through the details in my memory. So it's, it's been nice to see how much densely packed these episodes can be. Uh, aunt, nephew, sex, too. Just don't forget that. that <sighs> We've got a while. We've got a while. They have a long build-up to that. Yeah, so... In that vein, this is a very dense episode. There's an awful lot of scenes. So the way we structure these podcasts is I do a recap. We kind of talk through the scenes. Mm -hmm. We go to best line, which I'm the emperor of. I choose best line, me alone. And then we do a little book nerd bitching. Now, from the first episode, I think we ran long on the book nerd (laughs) bitching. Maybe like a good 30 minutes. So we have made a a gentleman's agreement between Spencer and myself. This has been notarized by multiple parties. But he will reduce book nerd bitching to only three idols. <laughs> you, 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 you take advice to heart when the main bit of criticism you get from your first review is, could Spencer speak less? I understand. I'm with you. We're going to cut down that section. I don't think that's what the people were saying. I think that they were saying, look, we get it. You don't like the, you don't like the show. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure they love to hear the dulcet tones of Spencer Leach. Okay. Going in now to the episode. All right, getting into the episode. The credits roll. Um, still the Baratheon sigil over King's Landing. I, I don't know why this is so stuck in my crawl, but it bugs the hell out of me. There is not a Baratheon, a Baratheon sigil, anything to be seen. The closest you've got is a, a bastard of King Robert who is now forging swords for the Lannisters. Can someone, Spencer, can you please tell me why there's still a Baratheon sigil over King's Landing? You know, I would frame it as a necessary fiction of where Cersei is framing herself as as Robert's, you know, heir as the continuation of his line. But when various leaders of foreign states are comfortable mentioning openly in the throne room, I know you're banging your brother, you know, in somewhat implied tones, there's no even fiction at this point. They are Lannisters. They are solely Lannisters. I think it's just a production defect. I want to point out, we, ne- we never saw Stannis die. So, uh, you know, little theory, little theory for you. It's okay, man. We're here for you. We're ready to support you. If you ever want to talk through your pain of this, we've got your back. I'm not ready. Okay, uh, we get through the rest of the credits. I want to point out something. I shit on the credits a lot, but the Old Town, the sequence for Old Town is fire it is really good and that's clearly one that they added later it wasn't a part of i think until maybe season six yeah the introduction yeah the introduction of the citadel in old town is wonderful that's a wonderful addition yeah it's really really good all right and we go to dragonstone Mm -hmm. where it's storming and it's appropriate that we're doing this episode today because i'm doing the podcast from what is typically lovely north carolina but today it rained and stormed all day. It was awful. Uh, it was spins- It was like it was like Florida weather, you know, like where it's just gross and hot outside. That's what it was. So right now, I'm in the room where I'm doing the podcast. I'm like Danny. I'm a little. I'm a little cabin fever. I'm a little stir crazy, <laughs> right? Well, Spencer, Dan- and I'm about to. I'm about to question your loyalty, Spencer. Danny, you, you hang on. Danny, you were born in this kind of weather. This is from which you are named. You are Daenerys Stormborn. Embrace it. Do not recoil from it. 
which is exactly how this episode starts. So we see the storm, and in Dragonstone, we see that the map room, there's lights on in the map room, people are there, and it's Danny, I think Missende and Grey Worm, Tyrion, and Varys. Mm-hmm. And Varys is launching into a very old man, you were born on a night like this, and Tyrion chimes in, because they're now BFFs. Danny's having none of this. She doesn't want to hear these nostalgic tales of when she was born or how people cry out for her name. And instead, she turns her eye on Varys. Now, this not this scene is not quite a heel turn, but what I'm telling you is like the the sweet chin music from Shawn Michaels is up, about to hit Marty Jannetty. He's about to go through the barbershop window. It is that close to a heel turn. Mm-hmm. And that, my friends, is the very first reference of this episode that Spencer's not going to understand. I'm Googling as we speak. I'll come, I'll catch back up to you in a couple minutes. Keep going. <laughs> Danny really here starts to question Varys' loyalty, and she's got some good points. She brings up, hey, you know, you served my father until you didn't. You served King Bobby B. Shout out season one until you didn't. Now you serve me. Are you going to serve me till you don't? You know, where do your real loyalties lie? And that's when Varys snaps back, and he says, my loyalty lies uh, with the men, and, uh, the men and women of the realm, the men who – uh, prosper under just rule and suffer under despots, which I thought was a pretty good line. It was an interesting... And he goes on to say... Go ahead. It was an interesting strength from Varys, because a lot of people, particularly lately, have been rather cowed by Danny. They're not sure what to expect of her. They're rather intimidated by her. Varys has been one of the few people we've seen in a while that looks her right in the eye and pretty much just straight tells her, I am loyal to you as long as you deserve it. Yeah, I thought that was good. Uh, he, and he, he, he pushes back on her, and then he, he basically says, hey... As long as I have my eyes, I'm going to use them. I'm going to be watching you. And if ever I think that you're going off the rails, like the Mad King, like King Bobby B, then, you know, I may not follow you anymore. But right now I choose you because I think you're the best chance the realm has. Now, I just like to make a point here. And then we're in the middle of a recap. But I would like to make a point that if you just take Varys and you just you drop him into like modern society, right? And he's on trial for something. This is a guy you want to call as his own witness because he is he's killing it here because Danny comes out with a really strong argument about how he is not to be trusted and how he has betrayed uh, the houses and kings that he has uh, served in the past and he fires back and it's 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 pretty good pretty compelling Danny then says well look okay I get it you know you you, you actually look after the realm you don't want to serve an unjust ruler but just promise me this if I'm ever you ever think I'm screwing up tell me like, don't just haul off on your own and betray me. Look me in the eye and let me know what I'm doing wrong. And Varys nods and says that he will. And then she comes up, eek, eek, little mad queen situation, and says, if you don't, I'll burn you. And he doesn't really face him. Yeah, he. Oh, Spencer, he, anything else you want to talk about with this scene? There's two things I love about the scene. I'm going to nominate one quote from this scene for best quotes, but we'll get to it. Is this one of the first times that anyone has looked Danny in the eye and told her your father was a mad, crazy bastard and you shouldn't be holding him up in any degree? Yes. No, it's not. Tyrion did. Tyrion did as well? Well, it, it's nice to yeah. see it because in some ways Danny's, you know, like you betrayed my father, to which Varys looks in her eye and says, yeah, of course I did. I will, I will do it to you in a heartbeat if you in any way follow the same path. And when she threatens him, he looks her right in the eye and smiles. It leads to an interesting question of if it comes to a point of when Varys wants Danny dead or Varys decides someone else is more deserving of the throne, does Danny stand a chance in that scenario? Well, 
I don't think so. I mean, and also listeners, if you're, you're you have a scorecard out here, score one for Terry there because yes, that did happen the first time that Tyrion met Danny in season five, and they were sitting down, and Tyrion basically threw shade at the Mad King, and Danny had that line, "I know the Mad King earned his name." Okay, next scene. Right at the end of that scene, uh, Grey Worm says that the Red Priestess from Ashai has come. We don't know who this Red Priestess is, but we find out pretty quickly that it's Melisandre. It makes sense because we, we had previously seen Melisandre. Um, oh, hold on. We didn't, did we? No. All right. Listeners, score one for Spencer. Tie Did, game. Didn't even say First a word. First time we see Melisandre. First time we see Melisandre. And she comes into the throne room uh, of Dragonstone and she starts to talk with Danny about, you know, being a red priestess and Danny kind of fires off like, well, you don't have any followers here, do you? And she's like, well, not yet. And we find out through the conversation that the reason she is there is she wants to implore Danny to meet with the King of the North, Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. She describes what Jon has done, that he brought the wildlings through the wall and that he's united to the North with the wildlings. And then Danny fires back. Sounds like a pretty impressive man. <laughs> Which is the first like little hint that we get that there's going to be like a romance there. I thought it was a little ham-handed. Yeah. And and then Melisandre says, "Summon Jon Snow." Scene ends. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, eh. Well, scene did end. Yeah, because uh, we had <laughs> we had Tyrion be a character witness for Jon, where he's like, uh, you know, I traveled to the Wall with him. I liked him. I also like the little like record scratch stop that happened when Melisandre says that Jon Snow is the King in the North, and then you cut to Tyrion, and he's just like. The fuck? It, it's Dark's bastard? <laughs> I was peeing off a wall the last time I saw this guy. What the hell? Yeah, it it, it, it really surprised folks. Uh, it, it, a couple things I would point out here that I just re- I really enjoyed about the scene is, A, this is, again, we've for the last couple seasons, we have seen Melisandre humbled and somewhat muted. She's seen two of her Lords of Light now fundamentally either reject her with death or just say, if I ever see you again, I will kill you. This is a very much, this is a Melisandre who is aware of her weaknesses. When she's asked essentially to make a prophecy, she basically shrugs and goes, you know, who can really be sure? You both have a role to play. You should meet. This is a Melisandre who has learned, has gone through a mess of hubris over the course of the last few seasons and has really emerged to a certain degree wiser for it. But, uh, yeah. Well, I agree. Uh, Alessandra is humbled, clearly humbled here. I'd like to go back to the, the the second that Tyrion figures out that Jon Snow is the king. You know what this is like, Spencer? I got an analogy for you. Please. This is like if somebody who like fell asleep in like late 2014, and then they woke up in February of 2017, mm-hmm. and somebody told them that Amarosa worked at the White House. Yeah. Yeah, there would be a certain amount of shell shock that would go in processing that. See, see, you thought you knew where I was going. I really did. I was, you know, getting ready to press the pause button for the sake of politics. <laughs> All right. Next, we go wait, to wait, Winterfell. Wait, I'm going to offer one last detail here about Danny. Okay. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned before about Danny, you know, adding in that if you betray me, I'll burn you alive, going a little bit mad kingy with respect to Varys. In this. We get a scene of where you know Tyrion suggests you should meet with him. Uh, I can't speak to prophecies or visions in the flames, but I like Jon Snow and I trusted him, and I'm an excellent judge of character. And Danny goes, "Fine, bring him, invite him to Dragonstone." And then there's just this building of the music as she says, "To bend the knee." 
Yeah. We, we well, have a, this is an imperious that, queen. Right? I mean, Danny's not going to be like, oh, yeah, well, I should bring him here and like let him keep the north. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's a whole shtick right now. So they, they had to build that in. Yeah. She is an imperious queen. She respects no other ruler but herself. Well, and she's got no reason to like the Starks. You hope you'd hope from her conversation with Tyrion and Vera, she'd have a certain perspective on the quote unquote betrayal of her father. Yeah, possibly, but I, I still don't think that there's like there's nothing that's engendered uh, any sort of warm feelings between her and the Starks, and especially if this guy's calling himself king, she just sees him as another ruler that she's got to overthrow. Although I do think that she's getting some advice here, both from Melisandre, who she weirdly kind of trusts, I guess, just because she's a red priestess and the red priestess helped her in Marine. Mm-hmm. And and Tyrion, who, like I said, character witness for John. Shout out. He was uh, he was right there on point. I'll point out, as Jon Snow likes to point out himself six times an hour, he's not a Stark. <laughs> you know, it, it, John tells you that you go, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> all right, moving on. Oh, but you're not. Oh yeah. All right. Anyway, huh? we'll get the theories later. Yes. Yes. Um, then we cut to Winterfell, where. Little Lady Liana is getting her wish, and the babies are learning how to shoot arrows. Uh, we have a scene where in the courtyard at Winterfell, uh, some very young children are are getting their Arya and Bran on and learning how to shoot arrows. And it pans up to John, who is talking to Sansa, and John has yet another scroll, and he reads it. Uh, and it's it's a it's a scroll from Danny or from Tyrion. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Requesting that John come and treat with with Danny and meet Danny. Uh, Sansa makes a good point here. Sansa goes, "How do you know this is really from Tyrion?" And John says, "Read the last bit." And she, mm-hmm. Sansa reads it, and it's all dwarves or bastards in their father's eyes. Which shout out season one. That is what I think in the very first episode, uh, if not the first one, the first couple, Tyrion says to John as they're having a conversation about how everybody hates them. Yeah, there are a couple scenes that are right here that are really harkening back to early season one. I agree. That quote is like first 20 minutes of the first episode. Also, the mere fact that, quote unquote, Lord and Lady Stark are standing above the central courtyard of Winterfell watching children at archery play. That is straight season one there, too. There is a cyclical nature of events going through this episode. Yeah. And then, you know, they're, they're kind of d- knocking it back and forth on if he's going to do this. Davos makes the point that Tyrion did mention that she's got an army of uh, Unsullied and Dothraki and three dragons. Mm-hmm. Here's something that jumped out at me. Well, two things. One is nobody seemed upset with the fact that she had a Dothraki army. My understanding of how the Dothraki are viewed throughout the Seven Kingdoms is that they're seen as like just wild savages. And I would think that there would be some reaction to the fact that the Dothraki had finally crossed the Nero Sea are finally in Westeros. And that would present, you know, a pretty big threat because I think everybody thinks that they're pretty much, they're wild, they kill, they're nuts. You don't want any parts of them. So the, the fact that didn't come up, I thought was interesting, but also Davos with the, I mean, Davos drops knowledge from time to time, but this one was a little bit face palm. Yeah. Duh. He goes, wait a second. <laughs> Fire kills whites, you told me. What Dragon makes fire? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks, Davos. Okay. Yeah, I, and by the way, shows the, how dumb John is because he hadn't pieced this together yet. I mean, give Davos... One of the things I liked about this is that the person who reads the letter, it's Davos. The effect of Shireen Baratheon on him still continues through to the present. So I could... And despite the fact it's a really stupid thing to have to point out, 
I just appreciate that he's reading. Yeah, I do like that there's like a sort of I promise school <laughs> in, in Game of Thrones. We've got Gilly, who's now reading, and yeah. she was she was from a really tough situation. And then you've got a Krabba son in Davos, who he's now able to read. So uh, that's great. Good to see. I'm glad that Davos is using that. But that was a little bit of a on-the-nose obvious comment there from him. <laughs> we then cut to King's Landing, where Cersei is uh, sitting with very good posture, mm-hmm. talking to the lords mm-hmm. from the Reach. And she's basically making the com- making the, the case to them that Olena, by turning on her and accepting a for, quote foreign ruler with quote foreign armies, that she has kind of lost her way, and that they need to reassess their allegiance because if they don't, they will soon be ruled by the Mad Queen's daughter. Which I thought it was really interesting that she continued to call her the Mad Queen's daughter not Danny or anything. It was the Mad Queen's daughter just reinforcing that connection there. And 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 that they would be ruled uh, and governed uh, through an army of savages. Mm-hmm. It, this seems like a very classic line of authoritarian rulers to try to reinforce a rule. It's that you need to tolerate me. You need to deal with the fact that, uh, you know, I maybe a month ago killed about th- a few... D- how many people do you think she probably blew up in the sept? A few hundred. I did something. Uh, well, I, you know, and I don't think it. Did, I mean, because the joining areas had to suffer damage as well. We saw that shot of the bell coming, you know, towards some citizens who were just walking down. So I think it killed a lot more than just the people who were actually in the sept. Yeah. So possibly a thousand people or more died as a result of her solely doing an action to protect herself and her own interests. So. To distance herself from that, she needs a foreign enemy. She needs to describe this as, there are foreigners coming, let me focus you on very selective aspects of the history of their leader, let me focus you on the, how she's a threat to you as the aristocracy. It's a very necessary targeted attack from an autocrat to basically say, there are communists in the streets, ignore everything else I'm doing. And it appears to resonate pretty well with him, like, like you just talked about. Apparently, the Dothraki are scary enough, or uncomfortable enough to them, that all of these people who most likely lost dozens or family members when Danny did this, I mean, the entire rage is in her marriage. She killed a lot of the people they knew, liked, and loved. But they're terrified enough of the Dothraki that they look at this and go, eh, maybe supporting Hitler is not the worst scenario that we have, we have here. Yeah, I agree. I, one thing I thought was interesting here is that, you know, Lord Tarly steps forward and says, hey, look, she's got three dragons. Yeah. That's all it took for Aegon to take the Seven Kingdoms. Uh, we, we, what are we going to do here? Uh, the, you know, uh, this isn't something beyond our control. Kyburn speaks up and just goes, "We are working on a solution." Mm-hmm. I'm like, I thought that was so stupid. I mean, how do they know Kyburn? Because I would have just been like, first off, who are you? And you think you got a solution to kill three dragons? Interesting. Yeah, I believe that. But they just kind of buy it. They're like, "Oh, okay. Well, the weird guy with the, the English accent. Yeah, he's right." It's an interesting political decision on Cersei's part that she names him as her Hand of the Queen. I mean, that's a political title that she's giving to a commoner who is not known, who is not popular, who has no backing, but she's openly wearing the badge of the Hand of the Hand of the Queen. Yeah, I don't think she cares about that. I think at this point, it's just who she can trust. And that circle is so small. I mean, it's like a dead guy who may or may not have a head, a brother who she's currently fucking, and a sociopath who has like t- created torture devices for the past three seasons. What a, what a little bevy of people she has there. I know. It's, it's quite the happy family. Well, then it cuts to 
Jamie and Lord Tarly are walking and really doing like a reenactment of like a West Wing scene that, you know, they walk and talk and walk they're, and like, they're strutting around. And Jamie is saying, hey, look, you know, I know you don't like my sister, which is probably how he starts every conversation. I'd like to point out <laughs> a, a good strategy, really. <laughs> I know my boss is shit, but work with me. Do you want to be ruled by foreign savages? And I think there is, you know, I'm not trying to get like real political here, but I do think that they were doing some level of focus on foreign, focus on savages, because that is part of our world political narrative right now. Mm -hmm. And it, it, they, they kind of intersected that, but they were, they were, I felt like there was an awful lot of focus on the fact that they're not from here, focus on the fact that they aren't our race, they're savages, right? And that seems to be playing with Lord Tarly. He's not arguing with it. It's worth noting that everything they say here is true. The Dothraki are, from whatever civilized definition we can offer, savages. Everything we've seen of them in combat is that they exist to rape, murder, and brutalize. That's how they, that's mm. their culture. The, mm, mm, the, mm. Build that wall. You heard it from Spencer first. I got you. Okay, okay. I, and every description that they had of Danny was accurate, too. I mean, she is descended from the Mad King. One of the few major political acts that she did was to take all of the aristocracy of a town and crucify them on the road leading to the community. Nothing that they're pointing out is inaccurate. It's just selective. Are you are you de are you declaring for Queen Cersei right now? I'm saying that Jamie is reading Lord Tarly really really well. I mean, Lord Tarly visibly flinched when he mentioned the Dothraki, and Jamie just kept on hammering that point again and again. Which it, it's a wise strategy. It's yeah. We 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 know enough to we know enough about Cersei, and we have enough perspective on Cersei to go. Come on, now there's a lot you're not focusing on here with respect to this murderous person who's on the throne, but. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, I suppose. Yeah, and he also kind of flushes his ego a little bit. He mentions that Lord Tarly was the only one to defeat Bobby B in battle. My selective memory has forgotten that. It is and true. Then, then Lord Tarly's son walks up. Jamie looks at him. I think he recognizes him. He says, Rickon? Yeah, says, Dickon. And Jamie goes, oh, that's it, which is a really great line. And he, he, I think it comes up multiple times. And I'm going to nominate right now. Jamie Lannister is alpha of the episode. Uh, this is a new award that I'm handing out. Alpha of the episode is the character who displays the unreasonable alpha tendencies of somebody with way too much confidence. And that is what Jamie showed right there. I have forgotten your name. Oh, it starts with Dick. Yeah, you're a loser. And he makes him say it too. He gets his name wrong and makes him correct him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's Dick on. Huh, that's it. Gotcha. <laughs> Very funny line. Then we cut to Sam. Um, he's with the Archmaester, and they are examining Jorah Mormont. And I got to tell you, I'm I was really, really impressed with the um, the makeup there on Jorah, and and the work that they did to make him look like that grayscale had progressed because it looked very, very realistic to me, and mm -hmm. I, I, I was kind of cringing watching it. I, I, I was indeed. I mean, we saw stone men before of those completely covered, but this looked like it was almost the armored scales of a dragon that were covering him. Yeah, and there was a quote from the actor who plays um, Sam, mm -hmm. who said that actually uh, Ian Ian Glenn is that his name? It is. Yeah, Ian Ian Glenn, who plays Jorah Mormont. The prosthetic department. It took them five hours to apply that, so he had to sit in a chair for five hours while they put that together. That's in the category of work of where I'm taking that home with me. This is how I just live for the next six months, honey. Don't ask any questions. <laughs> We're yeah. only doing uh, this once. Something, something weird happened at work today. Don't worry about it. 
This isn't actual leprosy. This is just a temporary condition. Go with it. Yeah, so I, I really liked uh, the scene. And, uh, you know, Sam now, he knows that this is uh, Jorah Mormont. He learns that the, the guy is Jorah Mormont. And he's really pushing, like, can we try to do something for this guy? And the Archmaester, who every time he's going to be in this show is going to be nominated for Alpha the episode, just dismisses <laughs> Sam and is like, oh, have you studied this? Do you know the varying rates of grayscale between infants and, you know, adults? And he just completely dismisses him. Mm-hmm. They leave, and he, they even leave, and the Archmaester pulls an even Alpha move. He leaves first and then, then yells, Come, Samuel. Here, dog. Here, dog. Come down. <laughs> but you see this look in Sam eyes, Sam's eyes, and you know that uh, he's still chewing on this. Mm-hmm. It's not done for him. So I think more to come on that. Anything you want to talk about from this scene? I mean, I, I'm going to actually give you categories of things I can talk about in book nerd bitching, but I, I like that they're bringing up Jor Mormon again about how important he was to Sam. It's an important scene even in the books of where the last – person that was with Dior in the books is different from the show was Sam. Sam cradles Dior Mormont as he dies and Dior Mormont dem- uh, begs of Sam that he seek out Jorah, that he tell him that he forgives him, that he encourage him on to take a different path in his life. So yeah, I mean, Mor- Lord Mormont it, uh, resonates still throughout the series and how important he was to Sam's upbringing and current condition. So it's going to motivate several actions by Sam before this episode is over. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Then we cut back to King's Landing where you've got Kyburn. He's walking Cersei through uh, the the bowels of King's Landing. It's some basement-looking type thing. And we see the dragon skulls. Not the first time we've seen the dragon skulls. We saw those back in season one when Arya got lost mm-hmm. and she saw them. And Cersei descri- explains to Kyburn that uh, King Bobby B. R.I.P. Uh, moved them from the throne room where the, the Targaryens had them and put them down in the basement because they quote would have made him feel small. I don't think anybody's going to make that man feel small. Balerion's uh, going to try. Balerion's skull was one of the largest things, one of the largest props they produced of that show. This thing is massive. Yeah, it's pretty big. And then Kyburn brings Cersei to some covered instrument that he has. He pulls it off. It looks like really big crossbow, basically. Yeah. He has Cersei stand behind it, and he's clearly aimed it right at the skull of Balerion's head. He asks her to pull the trigger or lever, and she does, and the arrow goes through the skull. Now, I am not a scientist, mm-hmm. but I would think that that dragon has been dead for like 350 years. Good that, point, yes. That fracturing that skull, not quite the same as a living dragon. I'm just throwing that out there. Hot take. Hot take. Let's also point out the fact that, you know, the armored scales that are supposedly as tough as steel don't appear to be on the skull anymore. You know, I could be mistaken. I only watched the scene once, but I don't think one of the main protections the dragon has is still in play. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, now, I, uh, one, little bit of, one little bit of trivia. This is the second of two interesting bits of Roman military technology we've got in the course of this episode. This thing that he's built is called a Scorpio, or a Scorpion, a light kind of ballista that's used for anti-personnel purposes. It is strong, it is light, and we've been using it for like 2,500 years. So, you know, it's a clever invention, and as I'll bring up on Book Nerd Bitching, this thing has been used against dragons before. Yeah, I, and I also, I'd like to point out that Kyburn here explains to Cersei that one of Danny's dragons was injured in the fighting pits of Marine. Yep. Yet again, how did he have? How did, he, did he, does he have that information? How has that information gotten to King's Landing? 
Varys, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. I mean, there's an implication that Quyburn has hijacked Varys' little bird network, at least at least in Westeros. How he's able to successfully extend that to cover the rest of the world so easily or so efficiently? There's some unanswered questions there. I I still have doubts that Varys' network is so easily subverted by a different person, at least not without his consent. I agree with that. I think what's more likely is that I mean, a fucking dragon flew into the fighting pits. <laughs> News would get out. Yeah, people were just, like, talking about it. And so, like, what would have been a little bit more realistic to me is if Kyburn kind of prefaced it and said, well, in the drinking halls they're saying, or this is something that's kind of being kicked around, we can't trust it, because that's how the information would get to them. Mm-hmm. It would just be some drunk from Marine was like, oh, I'll tell you about the time the dragon came in. Oh, we a, God, it was huge. I could throw a football over them mountains. You know, I, I also appreciate that Quyburn wanted to do a dramatic test to convince Cersei of the power of his weapon, but he essentially shot this at an ancient artifact of which there are a limited amount in the world. The, archeolo- the archaeologist in me was really, really hurt that they were firing at priceless artifacts. Could they, could they not test think... it against a wall? Isn't that just equally effective? Yeah, they're gearing up for a war against the Targaryen. I don't think they think it's a priceless artifact. I mean, hell, just even dragon bone is used for various things. This stuff is useful here. Yeah, well, then we cut to Danny. She's back in the throne room. It looks like the storm has decided it's it's middle of the day, and she's talking to Yara, Ilario, and Elena. Mm-hmm. And Yara, Yara makes it clear immediately that, look, we got the ships, we've got the troops, we've got dragons, let's just go take this thing right now, let's do it. Alario chimes right in, uh, she co-signs that, says she wants war, Tyrion immediately fires back, but we know how you wage war, mm-hmm. you kill little girls. Yeah, which we knew that was going to come up, I mean, Tyrion had a relationship with Marcella, and uh, Alario then fires back, you know, my, well, you're a Lannister. There are no good Lannisters. My only regret is that Oberlin died fighting for you. And I gotta say, you don't regret that he didn't just kill him. Like you, you your regret is that he was fighting for Tyrion, not that he didn't just stab the guy in the head when he had a chance. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be selectively forgetting that Oberyn sealed his own fate with a lot of posturing and trying to get the mountain to admit to blame. He had every opportunity to kill his target. Um, it was all that all that wine he was drinking before. Yeah, I mean, also Tyrion, with respect to Marcel, has some personal guilt there too. You mean you you remember that he was the one who sent her to Dorne. He was the one who recommended that alliance. In some ways, he's the one who sent her to her death. Yeah, I don't know that I believe that. Um, I mean, you know, if she had stayed there where he sent her, she'd have been fine because they were actually treating her very well. Uh, well, up until the whole poisoning thing, which kind of happened on their watch. Well, no, I mean, it, the only reason that happened is because Jamie went over there and was like, well, the queen, you know, or, or the king at that point, Tommen, but it was effectively Cersei, wants her to leave. If she'd have just stayed there, she'd have been okay. So I, I think oh. Tyrion, the move by oh. Tyrion, I don't question. Uh, I, th- I question after all of the shit went down, of course, Ilaria was reprehensible in killing a very nice little girl. Yeah, Ilaria, no, Ilaria was launching a coup at the same time that happened. If she had, if Marcella had stayed, she would have died in an even more brutal manner. Only reason she got poisoned was that Ilaria was in a hurry before she then killed off her, you know, what would be her brother-in-law? This was, yeah. 
Well, yeah, I disagree that, he, that you put that at Tyrion's feet. I, I think the move was a solid one at the time. I'm not putting uh, it at Tyrion's and, feet. And by I'm... all accounts, was working out before uh, the Lannisters lost their goddamn mind and just started fighting everybody. You were giving way too much credit to the Dornish in this situation. The Sand Snakes have their current power as a result of a violent no, military wait, 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 coup. Hold on. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Who? The Sand Snakes? The... Oh, I, I've forgotten this. You're going to remember them before this episode is over. The show is determined to make you remember. But awful, awful. They took power with Ilaria Sand by a violent military coup of where they engaged in flagrant acts of kinslaying. Why is anyone trusting them with anything? I'm not blaming Tyrion for what happened. I'm saying he's feeling guilt that he could that he didn't see the possibility of these current allies being bloodthirsty murderers. Mm. Yeah, well, Spencer, you got hot takes there. I think we, I think we've covered it. Uh, well, then we go to Tyrion, what I call affectionately Tyrion's plan. And I just can, when I'm watching this go on, I just see Tyrion like in a in a grocery store, mm-hmm. just handing out like Oryx to people, and it's like imps plan, it is imps plan, imps plan. Anyway, that I had that in my head, mm-hmm. and he starts to explain. All right, here's our plan here, people. I got this all figured out. What we're gonna do, Yara, you're gonna take your ships down to Dorne. Alario, you're going to get all those people from Dorne, which, book spoiler, isn't really a lot of people, and you're going to bring up King's Landing, and you're going to lay siege King Landing. Uh, Elena, you're going to take all your people from Highgarden, you're going to send them to King's Landing, you'll join the Dornish forces, and you will take the King's Landing. Mm-hmm. And Elena rightly points out, okay, so your plan is to just use all our armies, why did you bring your own? I love that quote. It's such a great it's thing to point out. Pretty good. That, so I'm going to nominate that for best line of the episode. And another yeah. one that she does this season that I'm about to get, or this scene that I'm about to get to. Mm-hmm. And Tyrion explains, well, you know, the Lannister's seat of power for decades, centuries, whatever, has been Casterly Rock. So we're going to, Grey Worm is going to take the Unsullied and he's going to take the Cape Casterly Rock because they don't have a lot of people there right now, right? Yeah. Presumably have brought their armies or at least part of their armies to King's Landing. Mm-hmm. So they're vulnerable. Let's take it. What I thought was interesting, in Tyrion's plan, he doesn't mention the Dothraki. I was going to point that out. It seems like everyone is thinking of the Dothraki but Danny's team for this episode. Everyone else is saying, the Dothraki are coming, the Dothraki are going to burn your towns. We don't even know where they are. I mean, are they still sitting on the boats? I don't know. I actually took it to mean what I was kind of getting at before, is that they are view- the Dothraki are viewed so poorly by the Westerosi that I don't even know that Tyrion wanted to use them. I think he was like, I don't know, let's, let's do this without them. It, that's, a, it, that's a wild card. It's possible, but you can't expect the Dothraki to sit out of this for too long. That's a bit overly optimistic of how loyal they are to Danny here. You know what it's like? It's like if you were friends with like a bunch of celebrities, mm-hmm. and one of them was Mike, was Mike Tyson, mm-hmm. and a fight broke out in a bar... Like, the first thing I would do is be like, Mike, sit down. Like, <laughs> You were going to kill some I, motherfucker. I don't know what you're going to do, but it's probably not going to be good for anybody. So you sit this one out. We're going to try to handle it. I think that's kind of <laughs> right. What this doing. room has ten- interesting because it, by all accounts is the, I mean, the most troops of any of the army, right? Like it's a hundred thousand Dothraki that she brought over and I know that they're incredible fighters. I mean, I would say it's a hundred thousand Dothraki. I don't think all of them are probably warriors, but it's still, a, it's still an impressive share of warriors that she brought with her. Uh, one last point of the Mike Tyson thing. You probably like to tell him that Mike, we got ten ears in this room. Let's keep it that number before we're done. <laughs> man, uh, he can't live that one down. I tell you, you bite one man's ear. People talk about it forever. Yeah, how did you know you bit it? I saw him spit it out. 
Um, but you know, well, and then and then, all right. So on that scene, well, uh, after the imp's plan, wait, 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 imp's uh, plan. Let's focus on the imp's plan for one second. What do you think of the imp's plan here? Uh, I liked it in theory, except that you know he's not using the two strongest uh, tools and. At, at Danny's disposal, which is the Dothraki and the dragons. I thought it was interesting that he was basically taking the weaker parts of his her army and trying to win the war that way. Yeah, they seem to be almost intentionally fighting with one hand behind their back because they're afraid of how it will look if they bring their full force to bear. That if they use dragons, they'll be associated with mad kings and burning people down. If they use the Dothraki, they'll be a foreign horde. But I don't really buy his conclusion here. That I mean, He's basically suggesting we can't burn the Red Keep Let's instead besiege King's Landing. That'd be more humane. This guy heard from Bronn back in Season 2 how horrible sieges are. More people are going to die in a siege than if they just burn down the Red Keep. Oh my god, Spencer. The hot takes. Whew, you're smoking today. Man, it, well, it, I, you know, I think what he's trying to say is if you use your dragons, you'll rule by fear. Uh, if you win a war in a more, quote, traditional way for Westeroses, then it's easier for the people to stomach your role. I think that's what he's going for. I don't know if that's right, but I, now, that's now, I accept that is what he's going for. I think it's a little bit naive, and I will address some of that in Book Nerd Bitching. I'm also going to point out one additional thing, which becomes very relevant near the end of this episode. Is anyone remembering how close King's Landing and Dragonstone are to each other? These two are yeah. a little jump across a bay. I mean, they almost can see each other if they look out the window. Uh, yeah, it's like Alaska and uh, Russia. I agree with you. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, we need Sarah Palin like, to explain this. No, seriously, I, I do think that the the show skips over that fact because they're they're extremely close together, and you wonder where all of the ships and all of the people in Danny's army are. Presumably, they're not at Dragonstone because there's nothing there to feed them. Yeah. So I I, I don't. This is something the book or the the show just kind of skips over, and it's an inconsistency, but. Yeah, for her to land at Dragonstone and have an army of that size, and for that not to overlap with King's Landing at all, I think is a little unrealistic. It could display a certain degree of overconfidence. It seems like several times throughout the show, they don't really, like, send out scouts, or they don't send out, you know, a, an advanced force to check an area or scout the surrounding terrain. And, as we will see at the end of this episode, the fact that they just didn't send outlying ships to investigate what's currently going on in King's Landing bites them in a really hard way, because Euron's fleet is there. They were there in the last episode. They're only like, they are a few days distance travel to be right upon their fleet, and Danny apparently has no idea about it. Yeah, agreed. I, you know, I just think that's something the show is skipping over for yeah. dramatic effect. It, Danny is overconfident, but they would they would have scouts. So I, it's one of those things you have to kind of pocket yeah, yeah, yeah. and go. And, and by the way, you said I'm going to address this in book nerd bitching like four times. Did you hear at the beginning of this episode, you get three things? Yeah, I'm going to give you a list of five, and you're going to pick your favorite three. Oh, my God. Spencer, coming up with coming up with segments on the fly. Okay, and then Danny basically dismisses everybody, but she asks Lady Olenna to stay. Now, here's something I want to point out mm -hmm. that uh, I did not notice my first or probably second watching is that the actress who plays Lady Olenna, Diane Rigg, She's sitting so in every scene this entire season. That is true. You know, I hadn't really thought about that. Huh. You, you think she was maybe having Yeah, enough? and so it makes me, yeah, I, I think there was probably, I mean, why? Why wouldn't she walk at all? And I know she, at the time of filming, I think she was 79 or something, so maybe she couldn't walk. But I just thought it was interesting. She was sitting in all the scenes. For, for, for a woman who chooses not to stand, she is still a towering presence in every scene she is in. 
Yeah, and this one. So then Diane Rigg, Lady Olena, starts talking to Danny, and she's basically like, hey, look, your your hand is a clever man. I've known a lot of clever men, and I've lived as long as I have by ignoring all of them. You know, you need to make these decisions on your own, I think is what she's trying to say here. She's trying to say, be who you are. And she has the line, you're a dragon, be a dragon. Mm-hmm. Definite nominee for best line of the episode. Loved it. Danny seemed to take it to heart, but doesn't really respond, and we don't see that she acts upon it in the immediate future. What do you think of this interchange? I mean, it is def- she's definitely offering a direct rebuttal to Tyrion's tactics. That Tyrion's trying to win hearts and minds. Late, uh, the Queen of Thorns is instead recommending straight Machiavelli. That, you know, you can try to go the long and hard way in terms of winning the loyalty of the people. You can be a Stark upon this world, but you don't have generations. You don't have the luxury of playing the long political game to try to build a base of power. You've got the army. You've got the resources. Coup de main. Take this thing now. And it's definitely... Yeah, and so basically... Yeah, sorry to cut you off, but everybody in that room is telling her the same thing except Tyrion. Yeah, and she appears to be going with Tyrion's advice here. And I, I it, this is an interesting scene of where it, it throughout this season it appears that Tyrion and Cersei are playing chess with each other. Of where they're each continually doing point and counter move to counteract each other's decisions or likely decisions. And it will be interesting as we discuss this to see who is getting the upper hand in this game. Yeah, I, and I, I thought it was interesting that Danny didn't question the taking of Casterly Rock because I would have I would have thought you're maybe a little too close to the fields on that one. Like, why are we going and taking a castle way away from where we want to be? And by the way, the rulers rulers of the Lannister House and uh, the King, Queen and the royal family are in King's Landing. If we just kill them. I'm not too worried about the Lannister army that's left out in Casterly Rock. So I thought it was a weird thing for Tyrion to pitch. I think it was a little personal for him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, bad on Danny for not calling that out. She needed to call that out. Yeah, she, she, they have the resources that if they wish to, they can divide their force. As we pointed out several times, the Dothraki are apparently in reserve to bring to bear when they need to. And they're trying to even put together more armies with the, with the Dornish and the, um, uh, the troops of the Reach. But she's basically sending her most elite troops way, way far away from where current base of operations and even where most of the fighting is going to take place to take a target that is more symbolic than actual. Yeah, I think that's that's what he's going for, but I don't know that it's militarily necessary, and I think it comes from a place of personal animosity. But that scene ends, we cut to Grey Worm sharpening his knife, which is really ironic because <laughs> doesn't doesn't have a knife. Uh, root I'm and stem. <laughs> well, we don't. Yeah, it says root and stem, but then Danny asks, "Does he have the pillar and the stones, or something like that?" And the answer, we never get an answer there. Yeah. But maybe we do this episode because then comes Mazende, uh-huh. and she's basically saying goodbye because they're about to ship off to go take Casterly Rock. And as she walks out, Grey Worm explains to her, "You are my weakness." And she's like, "Oh, I'm your weakness." Like she, you know, catches an attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, starts smacking her teeth. Oh, that's what I am. I'm your weakness. And he explains, <laughs> "Hey, look, this is actually a little bit romantic." The way the Unsullied train is that they identify the weaknesses of each boy, what they're scared of. If they're scared of the water then they, or they're scared of heights, then they actually put them in situations to address whatever they are scared of. Which This whole explanation made me really uncomfortable mm-hmm. because the image of like, little boys were scared of, uh, of, of drowning, just being thrown in the water. Kids who were scared of heights, uh, spoiler alert, I was one of those kids having to climb a damn mountain is terrifying, but it, it, I guess it is effective. And what Grey Worm explains is I never had any of these weaknesses. I could do all of it. And that's why I'm not the strongest. I'm not the biggest, but that's why I'm their leader. Mm-hmm. 
but you, Miss Sande, are my weakness. She gets it. She stops the attitude. And she starts to pull on the end of her dress. Now, here's something. I'm not a seamstress by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think they know buttons by now, don't they? Yeah, they, they know buttons. Why, why is it just a string? Why don't they have buttons? It, it makes one wonder whether Miss Sinday knew exactly what was going to play out before this scene was done. Because she wore her quick-removed dress before going in to meet Grey Worm. I suppose, but I don't think the moment would be lost if you just unbutton the thing. It just seems like a very inefficient way <laughs> to like hold the whole thing up, and also you're a little susceptible to like somebody just running up and grabbing the string, you know, just pull it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, she she drops trowel. She's standing there naked. She takes his shirt off. She goes to take his pants off. He says no, of course, because you know he's a eunuch. And she says no. I, I want to see you, all of you. This is where she gets the answer to the pillar and the stones. We don't get it. I'd like to point out. That Grey Worm uh, does not skip squat day. Uh, the glutinous, <laughs> the, the buttocks, very, very well defined. I was very impressed. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Pause. And they go at it. They he, you know, they go up on the bed and they start kissing. And then, of course, predictably, uh, Grey Worm goes down on Missandei mm-hmm. in scene. Now, here's a couple things I want to talk about this episode. Please. One Please. is... I thought it was it was nice. I mean, you know, these two characters, they've been building toward this. I think it's a very believable relationship. Mm-hmm. I like that they are together. They care for each other because they, in many ways, have been very lonely people throughout most of their life. Her as a slave, him as a eunuch. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, a eunuch, but also a, 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 a unsullied soldier. And now they're finding somebody uh, uh, to, to be with and, and feel good about. But I did think, Spencer, this is like the most explicit scene in the show, right? This is a really sexually explicit scene. This was, I almost feel like this episode was in some ways doing a response to, oh, you didn't think there was enough sex and violence in the first episode? We've got you covered. But it's interesting that they do it with characters that, you know, you can't really argue about them getting together. But I just thought it was pretty graphic and maybe a little much. I don't, I mean, I think think it was a heartfelt scene. Mm -hmm. I thought in some ways it was empowering of two characters who've had their entire lives taken away from them and controlled by other people, making a decision for themselves about being together. In some ways overcoming their past and what was inflicted upon them. I think that's heartfelt and that's meaningful. I also am coming from a conclusion of we only have so much time and so many episodes left before this thing ends, and as heartfelt as it was, I'm relatively indifferent to their relationship. I thought the scene in some ways may have gone on too long. It it ties into what you said about being maybe overly explicit. Mm, Man, more hot takes from Spencer. Doesn't care about Miss Sandy and Grey Worm, the two best people in the show. I got you. Okay, well, we can move on. Never be my publicist, please. Uh, so Archmaester seems to be giving a reading list to Sam. Uh, still more alpha moves from the Archmaester. They're just walking around. He's just throwing books on Sam's uh, on his his pile there, and it's up over his head. And at one point, he makes mention of uh, a book that I guess either he or other Archmaesters or, or Maesters that work for him are, are writing, and it's a book like I don't know something really innocuous, like the the. King and reign of uh, Robert Baratheon. Robert Baratheon, King Bobby B. R.I.P. Yeah. And <laughs> Sam was like, "Well, that's not very good." <laughs> just gets so mad at him for even questioning him, and just screams, "Well, we're not poets." <laughs> yeah, I, I found this scene uh, kind of fun for a couple reasons. Of one, I love that they name dropped Archmaster Chevaltish again. Remember that? Remember that reference from back in season two of when Tyrion's looking through books about sieges. That's true. Oh, point Spencer. That, that was a nice little hearkening back to, again, just bash Archmaster Chevaltish as being a pretty crap writer but a good historian. 
this also buys into a pretty persistent theory among the fandom that Sam is going to be the one to write the Song of Ice and Fire. That the, the fact that he's even named Sam harkens back to Lord of the Rings, where it was ultimately Samwise Gamgee that was the who finished up the Red Book, who finished the story of Lord of the Rings. So I think this scene kind of supports that theory that Sam is going to think of a more poetic title and put the coda on what will ultimately be this series. Theory alert. Theory alert. I like it, actually. I like that one. I I, I think this scene definitely supports that notion. I I mean, I I think when he was saying, you know, we could use a more poetic title, I think it's directly referencing the Song of Ice and Fire that no one really for the last 20 years has has had a clear clue of what the hell that means. Well, and it also harkens back to that conversation during the episode Watchers on the Wall when Sam is basically like, hey, we're going to die. I kind of want to know what sex is like. And John tries to explain it, and he's like, you'll die with her, and, and, and she's there with you, and uh, uh, I'm not a bloody poet. <laughs> Sam, Sam was like, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> so this is now two people that Sam has busted their balls for not being a poet. Uh-huh. Well, Sam then brings back up Sir Jory. He says he thinks he knows how to cure him. And again, you know, Archmaster Pilo says, no, you're not doing that. And cuts to uh, Sir Jorah sitting in his cell and he's writing a note to Danny, which not a surprise. I imagine it's a pretty emo ridden suicide note that he's doing, explaining his love for her, his devotion to her, but that he couldn't actually find a cure. Mm-hmm. In comes Sam. He has got like the little cart that the way the 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 airline like when you run it you know like the you're getting like the the little pretzels or whatever i'm, I'm blanking on the name little, little kiosk cart yeah that they roll down in an airplane yeah right. i know what you mean yeah and so anyway he's rolling that thing down and jorah looks up he doesn't know what's really going on and sam goes he drops this line sir jorah you're not gonna die today and he pulls out this big book. He asks Jorah to bite down on something. Well, first he gives him some rum. Jorah's drinking the rum. Sam grabs the rum and takes a hit of it himself, which is exactly what you want to see your doctor doing. <laughs> Very right reassuring. Before, Very reassuring. Right for a delicate procedure. Jorah bites down and Sam starts. And it, it, it it's interesting because, you know, grayscale has been talked about as this like mythical disease. It's incurable. It's so difficult. And the way that Sam goes about, quote, treating it or curing it, Seems pretty simple to me. He's just cutting away the dead skin. Yeah, I have I have two very contrary feelings about this scene. For one, the positive, I love how far this scene says Sam has gone. I mean, we're talking about Sam back in season one who was who couldn't be around a dead body. He couldn't be around even the sight of blood. Now he is willing to risk life and limb to protect someone he barely knows by confronting a great scourge of the age head-on, slicing into him with pus flowing everywhere. This is a Sam who has probably gone through one of the most profound character arcs of this entire show, and so I enjoy the direct showing of how Sam has truly become Sam the Bold, Sam the Brave. And as you pointed out, Grayscale, the great scourge of our age, this almost mythical, magical disease apparently can be cured by removing the top layer of the epidermis and supplying heart and applying hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. That seems way too easy and cheap. And remember, he Jor, they, they said that they were going to ship Jorah out in 24 hours. Sam needs to get this completed and Jorah fully healed before the sun comes up. 
this yeah well it, but, but but it looks like he could do it i mean he was he was slicing it away pretty quickly but yeah i, I just think that how they chose to show the curing of grayscale you kind of cock your head at but i am glad that sam has the guts to go through with this that he's he's given back to the old bear uh the old yeah. lord commander of the night's watch who really saved him on multiple occasions both literally and sort of as a as a, a person and a person with confidence issues he really looked out for sam i like that he's able to do this for the mormont family i i, I, I also really like the quote that you, you kind of get toward the end of this sequence where Jorah's kind of looking around and i don't know why does he even ask this question but he says you ever done this before and sam's just like i'm um, no but i'm the best you got which i thought was pretty funny like yeah. he's like look that's a dumb question like i'm nobody else is coming in here to help you just, just be quiet let me try this yeah i said i love many aspects of the scene i just feel like a condition that was really, I was hoping, going to drive a lot of Jory's character development throughout this season, a lot of where he was going in the plot, is resolved in less than a quarter of an episode. And it, it feels cheap for something that they've been building up as truly a threat and truly something that it was unlikely he was going to be able to overcome. Yeah. Okay, well, let's speed up here. I think we're, we're running a little long. Uh, you have a really gross segue between <laughs> Sam putting tweezers into Jorah's grayscale and pus coming out. That's not the first time some, they've done some, this with Sam either. Yeah, and then someone actually at the crossing, you know, putting a, a spoon down into like a meat pie and the gravy coming out. It's pretty gross. And we see that Arya's at the crossing. She's sitting down at a table, and my main man, Hot Pie, comes by. And Arya immediately just grabs whatever tray he has and is like, well, who was this for? And starts eating it, which was pretty hilarious. Mm -hmm. Hot Pie asks if if Arya met the the Lady Knight, basically mentioning Brienne. Arya says yes. Arya then shotguns some ale. I mean, Arya is now a different person. I mean, she's just like, yeah, that's some beer. Give it to me. Mm -hmm. Then Hot Pie, who it just he's a he's a great character because he just talks unnecessarily. So if you want to get information to a character, yeah. You just need to put Hot Pie there because he'll just start talking. Hot Pie, Hot Pie knows more than Varys does at this point. Apparently, just live in an inn for a few months. You will find out about a lot what's going on in the world. Well, it's the crossing, too. Like A lot of people have to stop there. So, it's true. Yeah, he, and he explains that uh, John came down from Winterfell with the Wilding Army and, and took Winterfell from the Boltons. Mm-hmm. And, and they've already named it. They've already named it, and I love that. Right. The Battle um, of the Bastards. It's already, it's already Super Bowl Twelve. I love this. I hate that name. But anyway, Hot Pie explains he won the Battle of the Bastards, and John is king. And Arya's like, you're lying. He's well, what would I lie about that? Which is a very good point. Point for Hot Pie. Mm-hmm. And Arya's kind of like, well, damn. And then she goes to get up, uh, presumably to continue her trek to King's Landing, which she told Ed Sheeran last episode was to kill the queen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Hot Pie, in one of my favorite exchanges of this season, just goes... Oh, Ari, I can't believe you were a boy. Or, oh, Ari, I can't believe I thought you were a boy. You're pretty. And yeah. she looks like, you just did the grossest thing in the world just, to her. Dude. She just grimaces full body. She, oh, yeah. Thank you. I, I, I love her. Uh, I love two things about this. One, uh, Ari is more natural around strangers and Ed Shireen than a guy that she, you know, a person that's actually a friend. That's just how far she's gone down the rabbit hole of Terminatorness. And two, okay, I, we, we were corrected last episode. It's Ed Sheeran, not Shireen. Sheeran. Fine, whatever. I love Shireen more than I love Sheeran. Um, and then last little bit, I love her little exit remark of where the most human thing that she can offer is to kind of tap him on the shoulder and say, uh, don't die. <laughs> I mean, the confidence of Hot Pie. I won't. 
I'm like you, Harry. I'm, I'm a survivor. survivor. <laughs> and, and it's true. He's written himself out of the story. That's how you survive this how to survive this these uh, books and series. Yep, good work, Hot Pie. Well, then we cut back to John. He's looking at a map. Uh, he's gotten Sam's Raven. Um, and he's talking, and then he's in front of the Lord of Northern Lords, and uh, he basically just explains, like, I got a couple ravens here, right? I got one from Sam, who I trust more than anybody in the world, telling me that there is dragon glass on dragon stone. Now, I was told this by the one true king seasons ago, forgot it, but now Sam has told me, so I know it again. And I got this other one over here from Tyrion Lannister, who is hand of the queen to Daenerys, Daenerys Targaryen, who is now at Dragonstone and has invited me there. Mm-hmm. Moral, of the, moral of the story, Northern Lords, I'm a go. I'm a go. See me the Dragon Queen. You know, the I, Northern Lords do not like this at all, including little Lady Lyanna. This might be the only L she takes in the whole season because, or in the whole series because she clearly doesn't like this, but John does it anyway. Mm-hmm. He explains, look, I'm going. Sansa gets fired up because she really likes to posture in front of the Northern Lords, and John basically says, look, chill out. I'm leaving you in charge of Winterfell, which it's so funny because she's so morally opposed to the king leaving until the king says, well, now you're in charge. And she's like, well, okay, well, safe travels. Enjoy your trip. I mean, I enjoy the implication of the scene. We would never think that John's fond of theater, but the implication of the scene is he basically likes to surprise everybody with news. He didn't tell Sansa anything about this before they walked in with their lords. He's just like... Okay, I'm going to make a scene. Let's see how everybody reacts to this. Yeah, well, it, it worked. I mean, he got his point across, and Sansa's placated, and everything's yeah. good. So presumably before him and Davos leave, he's down in the crypts. He's mm-hmm. looking at, you know, his father, who they make a point doesn't look at all like his father. Mm-hmm. and Or the statue of his father doesn't look at all like his father. And in strolls Littlefinger with uh, yet another accent. I don't know what Aiden Gillian is doing, but this accent has changed six times in five of, or in seven seasons. It's amazing. We, we were and, exploring the realm of British accents at this point. <laughs> I knew Pat. She was very good. I liked her very much. <laughs> and he, he's talking to John and he brings up Cat. What, what is uh, he trying John, to do here? You just... I, too much confidence. Way too much confidence. He's just existing to rag people at this point and try to piss them off. And then John does exactly what you would expect a Stark to do. I mean, we talk about scenes replaying old scenes from season one. This is straight up Ned pushing Littlefinger against the wall when he's making fun of Cat. Or he feels like he's making fun of Cat. Yeah, he wasn't. He was saying how much he liked Cat. But yeah. I liked Cat very much as a child. She was great to me. I liked mm-hmm. her very much. Well, John... Doug, like you say, uh, gives him the side eye, pushes him up against the wall, uh, basically explains, you know, if you, you hurt Sansa or you touch Sansa, you know, I'm coming for you. Mm-hmm. John storms out. Uh, he gets up from the crypts and him and Davos ride off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we got two scenes left, so we're, we're st- we still can make it. All right. Next scene, Arya. She is, when she left the crossing, she... She took a different turn. We didn't really know. I mean, I, when I saw it, I, I thought that she had gone back to the north or on the road back to the north, but it's not really that obvious for your casual viewer. Well, she's camping, and that we, if you, if you go with the theory that she's going back toward the north, she's in the Riverlands at this point. So that's what we're going to go with. And, you know, it, it sort of gets weird. Like, it's almost like before a tornado, right? Like, everything gets quiet. Mm-hmm. The, you know, all of the sounds kind of go away, and she hears little crunches, crunch, crunch of leaves here, there. She looks, it's a wolf to her left, wolf to her right, 
wolves all around. She, even Arya at this point is a little freaked out because, I mean, Arya could probably handle like a wolf or two, but he's like eight wolves. Mm-hmm. And she turns around and the alpha wolf is there. And <laughs> we, are, we are meant to believe that this is Nymeria. I believe this is Nymeria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this wolf... <laughs> It's like a baby elephant. Like <laughs> this reminds me of the the bear liver they took out of that maester in the last episode. <laughs> when they decide to make something big in this show, they oh, make yeah. it fucking big because that thing is huge. Oh yeah, dragon skulls, <laughs> wolves, livers, everything is massive. <laughs> so big. Well, she walks over to uh, to wolf because she is starting to, to sense that this is Nymeria. Now, for those that don't remember, Nymeria was the dire wolf that was given to Arya. When Eddard Stark came upon a uh, a litter of direwolves in season one, gave one to all of his children, including John. John got the white one because he's the bastard, and that's Ghost. Mm-hmm. Ghost is still alive. Nymeria, we haven't seen since Arya was worried that the Lannisters might kill the wolf because the wolf bit that asshole Joffrey and threw stones at her until she left. Yep. Well, yep. What, what we're meant to believe from this episode is that Nymeria made it. And she got herself a pack of friends, and now she's the alpha wolf, and they're just kind of roaming the riverlands. Nymeria gnashes her teeth at Arya until Arya speaks to her and looks at her, and then it's clear that Nymeria remembers who she is. And she doesn't uh, act aggressive toward Arya, but Arya suggests that Nymeria come with her to Winterfell. Then we get the that, – that, in, that uh, in that scene, that's when we get the confirmation that she actually had turned back north. To go to Winterfell, mm-hmm. and Nymeria at this point is too wild. Uh, she she can't do this. Um, she's been out too long. She's been gone too long. I think there's a great comparison there mm-hmm. with her mm-hmm. and Arya. You know, Arya's trying to go back to Winterfell, but we're meant to wonder: Is she too wild? Is she like Nymeria? Can she not really go back and be the same person? Because Nymeria is saying, "I can't do that. Yeah. I, I can't do it." But I will spare you. So neither Nymeria or the wolves attack Arya. They leave very quietly, and Arya's left there standing. And I think it, I agree with your interpretation. I think it's also very symbolic that Arya, who has made a decision to re- get return to her roots, is being directly rejected by the emblem of her house. Uh, that a dire wolf is choosing to reject her. A dire wolf is choosing not to follow her. It's symbolic of the struggle she's going to go through in terms of whether she can go home again. Yeah, I agree. Okay, cut to the imp's plan. The imp's plan is playing out. We've got uh, Alaria, she is well. At first off, we just see the sand snakes. The sand snakes are on one of the Greyjoy chip ships, and they are as sufferable as ever. With oh, this sort of like, who are you kidding first? I'm a kidding Cersei. Ah, I like a mama. I like a mama. It just it yeah. raids on me. I can't listen to the accents. I don't know who told them that was a good idea, but it's awful. It, 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 knowing that Euron is coming, most of this scene was spent with me saying, "Come on, come on." Kill them now. Hurry up. I know you're about here. Mm-hmm. Well, it, yeah, and the Sand Snakes, uh, the names of those, if you don't remember, is Obara, Nymeria, which is weird because we just saw Nymeria the Wolf. That's that's awkward. Uh, and then Tiny. Well, we go from the weird, stupid uh, dialogue between Sand Snakes. We cut to a scene with Yara, Alaria, and Theon. Mm-hmm. And Ilaria is complaining that she doesn't like the wine. We get it. Throwback to the Dornish had the best wine. But then we see a little flirtation between uh, Ilaria and Yara. Come on, Euron. Hurry up. <laughs> They're enjoying themselves. Hey, uh, side tangent here. So I read that in this scene, when Ilaria and Yara kiss, 
they that was completely improvised by the actresses and it was not improvised during the 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 rehearsals it was just on the live take when they did it oh yeah and and me and theon like i midway through the scene just grabs his drink and moves to leave it's just like okay i'm done just have fun let's move on i thought it was pretty great but it, it did make me think like so I've only heard of two improvised scenes that we've had in this show. Ooh, what's because the other one? The, well, we, we talked about it last week. It's when Brienne comes in the courtyard at Winterfell. Ah, right, yeah. And Tormund shoots her a look that like could potentially get her pregnant. I mean, that was a <laughs> lusty look. He it was loaded, all right. So it makes you wonder, like, if the only thing they're improvising on this show is to create romance among characters that weren't originally planned to have romance, like that's a rap party I want to go to. Like this is it's getting uh, weird on set. That's what I'm saying. It, it's fun when the actors engage in the shipping themselves. We don't need a fan base. We've got the romance editions covered. <laughs> well, then you you got your wish. Yay! A rocking and Yara immediately jumps up. She tells. Uh, she goes up to the top, I think, and then she maybe sees one of the sand snakes. Anyway, it, somehow someone tells the uh, Tyene mm-hmm. to get down in the, the under the the deck there with Alaria and to protect her. Yeah. And we have Yara. Yeah. And then, then, then you get a scene where Yara is talking to or with Theon, and she turns to Theon and looks up, and there's a monster ship in front of her, and just says, "You're on." Yeah, the silence bearing down on them out of the blackness is such a gorgeous scene. It's just intimidating down to the ribs of the ship. It's just, I love that. Just bearing straight down on them with this massive Corvus gang ramp just looming out of the darkness at them. And then, ladies and gentlemen, coming down from the rafters, it's Euron, the process, Greyjoy! And you and I you presented process. that. I am the process. You're on Greyjoy. I'll take your ship. I'll take your ship. His ship. All the ships. My ship. The biggest ship. I'm the best in the NBA. I'm the best in the narrow sea. Uh, I'm the you're on the process. I would not rest till I have the Queen Noriri. Forget NBA. That is straight WWE coming down. Triple H has arrived on the middle of the deck, and it's glorious. Yeah, it really was. I don't know if you guys have ever watched or listened to the Binge Mode podcast uh, that the Ringer does. And they they did a podcast for every episode of Game of Thrones leading up. If you haven't listened to it, you should listen to it. It's brilliant. But one of the segments they do is when a scene like this happens, they just yell, is that Euron's music? And it just slayed me every time. And this was a perfect scene for it. So shout out to the Benjamin Podcast. Love those guys. I expect I expect Euron the royalty check before the we do that again. Oh. Say what? I expect the marketing check before we do that kind of plug again. No, hell no, man. I love the ringer. I'm, I'm always going to shout them out. And then Euron jumps down, the fighting commences, you see this great scene of like Euron's um, guys and army or whatever jumping over the hull of the ship Mm -hmm. that Yara is on and they're fighting. Euron fighting with an axe I thought was a really good move. I mean, you're obviously going to be fighting in tight quarters, which is why Nymeria, of course, has a whip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that works out well for her. Really, really terrible. But anyway, Euron is like wild axe swinging. He's got the blood going, and he's kicking some ass. But so is Yara. Yara's holding her own. And Theon, who, you know, his uh, reckoning and all of the reekness that he dealt with, apparently can still fight because he's kicking some ass too. Yeah. I, I'll, 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 uh, it's interesting to see that he. we think for a moment here that he's working through his PTSD, that he is reached a bit of a center, that he's capable of 
holding a bit of who he is again. But by the end, it's reasonably and perfectly expectedly subverted. Yeah, because ultimately it comes down to a battle between Yara and Euron. Euron bests her and you know, captures her, puts the axe up around her throat, and then taunts Theon. He says, I have her. Come and get her. Theon looks around. Not, we're not sure. I wasn't the first time I listened to it completely sure what he was thinking, but he did drop his sword and jump overboard. Smash cut. End of the episode. Yeah. And a, a couple little bits of uh, things I noticed here that I really liked. Uh, one, it, this is this is not book nerd bitching. This is just book trivia. But uh, Euron here is channeling one of Theon's other uncles that's been cut from the show, Victarion, who is basically an aquatic Conan the, Ar- Conan the Barbarian, of where he's coming down screaming, he's coming down yelling, he's got armor from, well, not head to toe, but neck to toe, and a massive fuck-off axe, and he is just ready to inflict carnage. And I love the implication, too. Again, his ship is named the Silence. Euron cuts the tongues out of all of the various members of his crew to earn that title. None of the members of his crew in this scene say a word. When the Sand Snakes say, kill us at one point, one of the crewmen doesn't say anything in response. He just, you know, evilly shakes his head at them. And even when they're, they've are they won and when they're victorious, they're taking prisoners. We see them cutting the tongues at every person that they're, uh, is still alive on the deck. So I love those oh, little yeah, references. Oh, yeah, I remember that scene. Yeah, they, they take Alaria and she's like, kill me. <laughs> I would almost put that forth as best quote. <laughs> I'd almost offer that his best quote is that look that guy gave her when he shakes his head is, oh, it's not going to be that easy. Um, and he did all, he did all with, God, the, the yeah. accents on the Dornish people in the show. Uh, la- last little thing I, I love from this is that uh, Euron kills two of the Sand Snakes. He kills Obara and uh, Nim, and he kills them with their own weapons. He stabs Obara with her own spear. He hangs Nim with her own whip. I feel, I feel like this is in some ways poetic as to uh, the violence of the Dornish, the weapons in their own hands being turned against them. But they've run by violence. Everything they've done has been through their own weapons and with no thought beyond them. And for them to be put down through their own tools of war, I think, is just a very effective way for them to exit the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're on doing a solid for all Game of Thrones fans there and getting rid of two of the three Sand Snakes. I would, all right, I would, end of episode. Yeah. All right, do you want to go to best line? Uh, yeah, I, I feel like we've got... I don't think we have as many options as the first episode, but I think we still got some good ones to go through here. Yeah, we do. I mean, first one I'm doing is Rickon. Dickon. That's it. <laughs> I, I would offer one from that um, same scene of where... I, I like Randall Tarley as a character, both in the books and in, and in the show. The actor who plays him does a wonderful job of this just utterly rigid honor in terms of how he acts. And so his line, just with just pure gruff of, I'm a Tarly, that name means something. We're not oath breakers or schemers. We don't stab our rivals in the back or cut their throats at weddings. I just love how that line was presented and done. Yeah, throwing a little shade there at the Lannisters. Mm-hmm. Then you've got Lady Olena. You are a dragon. Be a dragon. Mm-hmm. I like that one a lot. I, I like Olena's also line of "Forgive me for asking, but why did you bother? The, why did you bother to bring your own army?" Uh, you are not dying today, Sir Jorah from Samwell. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, Sir, do I have any other ones? I would offer an early one from uh, Varys as well. Just I, I liked uh, his line of uh, "Robert was an improvement on your father, to be sure. There are few rulers in history as cruel as the Mad King. Robert was neither mad nor cruel." He, had, he simply had no interest in being king. 
I, I think it's a well-framed line from Barris, and I think it effectively describes some of the merits of Robert's rule. But even a guy who doesn't give a damn is a lot better than most of what we've seen in this world so far. Agreed. Okay, I think that covers enough, unless you've got another one. Yeah, I've got the winner. What? Oh, the winner. What do we got? The winner. Hot Pie talking to Arya. <laughs> Ari, can't believe I thought you was a boy. You're pretty. I, I, I adored that. I adored Loved the awkward it. casual flirting of that. <laughs> Loved it. Okay, we are on to Spencer's favorite segment of the week. Okay. And it said, I'm going to, I'm going to give you four options and you're going to tell me which of the ones you want to hear. That sound good. I cut, I even, you you give me four, I'm choosing three. If that works by you. Sounds good. I'll just tell you which one I don't want to hear then. Okay. Option number one, uh, dragons are not invincible. The history of dragons being killed. Uh, Nymeria wolf dreams and magic in the history of the show. Uh, the origins of House Tyrell and how their lord's decision is perfectly in line with history, and the use of dragons by the Targaryens and how Tyrion's knowledge of history is apparently pretty faulty. Ooh, uh, we're in for like, what, an hour of this? You no, I'm going to be quick. I'm going to be quick. <laughs> All right, I don't want to hear about the Tyrells. Okay, we're cutting the Tyrells. Uh, dragons not being invincible. A lot of the show has hammered home the idea that these dragons are unstoppable killing machines, and I thought it was useful to Quiburn to point out that, hey, we've uh, they've been hurt before. However, there's a lot of the things that he should have pointed out just given basic knowledge of history. That scorpion that he's used, the reason I'm calling it a scorpion is that George R. R. Martin refers to it as a scorpion. He referred to it when the Dornish put a, a, put a, uh, a scorpion bolt through the eye of one of Aegon the Conqueror's first three dragons and killed it. This is a point of history that everyone knows. These scorpions are not new technology. They're not something that you should forget about. This is something that is well known as effective at killing dragons, that concentrated arrows or concentrated heavy bolts like from a scorpion will bring them down. In own history, friggin' peasants armed with nothing but their fists and clubs killed most of the Targaryen dragons when they stormed the dragon pit during the Great Targaryen Civil War. In some ways, I found Quiburn relying on these kind of mundane things a little bit disappointing. Quiburn's a character that relies on things that cross the line between technology and magic. I almost hoped here that a tool that Euron has in the books, the dragon-binding horn, would have come forward, of where this truly mythical ancient device or something that he's combined with his own technology is truly something truly unexpected. This, while perfectly practical, isn't exactly surprising and shouldn't be, you know, catch anyone off guard that they have these kind of tools available uh so that covers the first one any response yeah, response gonna, to that yeah i'm gonna respond to that yes i am as a matter of fact i i really like that the show didn't use the dragon horn mm -hmm. because i feel like for you for me that would be cool it'd be a callback to the books for the average viewer they would go he just blew in a horn and that, what? Uh, that would be such a weird thing to try to throw in for the casual viewer. I just think they would have lost the majority of the audience. And I'm going to address that in point number two about how magic is used in the show. Of where, for a show that has gotten increasingly magic focused for, uh, in terms of, you know, the others playing a predominant role, dragons being front and center, zombies friggin' invading in the world. It's amazing to see how much magic they've cut from the books. When Nymeria shows up what she did, for book readers, we're excited as all hell because Nymeria has been in the books. Nymeria has never actually left the books. Uh, Arya has been having wolf dreams, has been seeing through Nymeria's eyes 
from the almost from the very moment that she left her behind, particularly once she goes overseas and is in the house of black and the white learning to be an assassin. That in the books, all of the Stark children are wargs. John regularly sees through the eyes of ghosts. He doesn't understand it, but it's a key aspect of his character. Arya sees through the eyes of Nymeria. She sees through the eyes of a cat that helps her get through her training. There's so many aspects of magic the show has felt necessary to leave behind, and I feel like in some ways that leaves a lot of the mystery, a lot of the full expanse of this world with it. That We mentioned the dragon-binding horn. In the show, when Euron shows up to at the king's moot to become king, he walks in and essentially says, my dick is bigger, vote for me. And apparently that is a very profound endorsement for the... Uh, uh, for the, uh, the for the Ironborn, also effective in American politics. Uh, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll we'll address that point on a separate podcast. Uh, in the books, he has a magical device that he found half the world away—a device which literally boils the lungs of the persons that try to the, the, the person who blows it, who brought, knocks an entire island of people to their knees in pain and confusion. And he basically presents this as that this is a horn by which the Valerians brought dragons to their knees. It's not that I've got the biggest, biggest dick. It's that I can bring atomic weapons under your command so that we can take over the entire world. Wow, Spencer working blue. Um, and, of course, there's, you know, Lady Stoneheart in terms of eliminating that aspect of a magical character. I, in some ways, am disappointed by the fact that the show has felt the need to remain grounded when the world that is operating in is so magical and strange and so beyond what we can reasonably comprehend. Your response? I think that a lot of the stuff that you were just pointed out that the show left behind, it would have taken a lot of the, this is back to the point I just made, it would have taken a lot of the casual audience out of this. And I love that this is the last show. I think it's the last show that's appointment television for not just our nation, but the world. Everyone sure. watches the show. It's a, it's a global event. Mm -hmm. It would not be that if every one of these magical things that you just described, that, which require a lot of backstory to even understand, mm -hmm. was presented without context when they couldn't give you context because they don't have enough space. And so I think they, it was good that they cut a lot of the stuff – with one exception, I, I would have liked Lady Stoneheart. I think that would have been okay. But, you know, a lot of this other stuff of Arya warging and, you know, the, the horns, and it just would have been hard to explain in a way that made sense. And they, and they were still able to progress the plot. I accept that it would have been difficult. I dispute the notion that it couldn't have been done. I think it would have just simply been a different show rather than a impossible show. Um... The last Hot take. The last thing I today. last thing I'll bring up uh, the use of tar the use of dragons. Uh, I've discussed them several times as being like atomic weapons, which you know under under real world conditions, the reason we have mad is that you can't use atomic weapons; that they are mutually assured destruction to even bring out. And Tyrion frames the dragons in that manner that the idea of using them is inherently murder in his view. That the moment we bring dragons to bear, everyone in the world's going to turn against us. And he really frames it as if that when Aegon the Conqueror first brought dragons to the world, he just burned down the world to take it over. And that's really not true. The only times the dragons were really used was against armies. They were used in direct battles. The one major, you know, hold fast of everything else that they hit, at least during the war proper, was to burn a castle with soldiers in it. It was to attack troops upon a field. 
it wasn't to attack innocent civilians. Dragons are capable of being particularly selective. There were several times of when they even used dragons non-violently to convince people to surrender. That we've seen before the veil, the eerie, that impossible to take castle that's hiding, that's hanging off a mountain. They defended all their whole, their pass and went, uh, yeah, come on and take this. And so they flew one dragon to the castle and then gave the prince of the Eyrie a, 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 a ride around through the air. And the people of the Vale surrendered. It was a nonviolent means of just showing we have these tools, we can use them, but we don't have to. That Serious big boy move there. Serious big boy move. We're at war. And I'm taking your kid out for a spin. It worked. It worked wonders. And when they, oh, I bet it is. And the, famously, the North was not in any way damaged, and its armies and its people unhurt, because when the army of the North marched south to fight the Targaryens, the Targaryens just brought all of their army and all of their dragons and just let the North see it. They didn't destroy cities. They didn't even destroy the army. They just simply showed what their hand was. That you can use the threat of force in a way that is nonviolent. You can use the idea of what you are capable of to bring somebody to heal. And it doesn't seem like Tyrion gets that or the show is entertaining that as an option. Your response. Agreed. Agreed. That's where um, hashtag Imp's plan falls apart because they should have been using the dragons. Elena was spot on to begin with. We'll get to it in later episodes. Finally, Danny finally gets it. This is what makes her special. This is what will separate her both militarily and from a sort of all perspective. Um, you know, a, a, which you need some of that if you're going to be like an imperial ruler, right? You can't seem like the everyman. You don't. You want your president to be somebody you can have a beer with, but you want your king to be somebody beyond reproach. Sure. And the, the dragons give that to her, so she gets it later. She she figures that out. Yeah. But I think it was a mistake not to use them initially. And I think that the way it's written is that we are supposed to understand that by episode four. And, you know, this is a lesson that Danny already learned herself. She le- realized her greatest error in one of her storylines was to chain up her dragons, to lock them underneath Marine. But she's following the same path again. Um, it, 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 without her dragons, she is exactly what the target, what the uh, Cersei is saying that she is. She's just a foreign invader backed up by an army of murders and rapists. Her dragons make it something more than that. Well... T- I think you have you have properly book nerd bitched. Thank you. Anything else you want to go through, chest? No, and just in summary, I would say that particularly, I love the last scene in particular, and it provides a wonderful note to end this episode on. I thought this episode had some weak scenes, but I thought overall it was a strong continuation of the first episode. Yeah, I agree. I liked it. Uh, very dense, sets the table, and uh, we will pick it back up next week. Okay. Well, any any closing words for our audience of hopefully 12 people? <laughs> no, other than next week, you know, we're going to do episode three. Uh, we're going to follow a similar format. I like this format where we kind of streamline it a little bit. We do the recap. We have some banter. We go to uh, best line, uh, which I am the emperor of, Avi. Mm-hmm. And then Spencer can do a little book nerd bitch and to wrap it up. So we'll be back next week with the same format. Thank you for joining us for the GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Talk to you next time. See you then.